Hi, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of Sustainable Futures, Designing Green Communities and Buildings, a Living Architecture Monitor podcast from Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. My name is Stephen Peck, and I am your host today, as well as the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. We are the industry association for green roofs and walls across North America. Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Arlene Throness and Nicole Austin, who run the two rooftop farms located at the Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly known as Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. Now, people around the world are discovering and in some cases rediscovering the joys of urban farming production and rooftop food production in particular. These projects are really fundamentally important to implementing healthier and more sustainable communities. So today we're going to get our hands into the soil, so to speak, and explore the subject of rooftop farming with two experts. We'll explore some of the nitty gritty benefits and details associated with this growing opportunity. Now, Arlene Thronis is passionate about growing, sharing and enjoying food. She's the urban farm manager at the Toronto Metropolitan University, where she oversees two campus rooftop farms. She holds a Bachelor's of Arts degree in political science from Concordia University in Montreal and a certificate in ecological garden design from the Linnea Farm on Cortez Island in British Columbia. Prior to working at Toronto Metropolitan University, Arlene was the coordinator of Concordia University's rooftop greenhouse in Montreal and a founder of its City Farm School. Arlene was a recipient of the Toronto Botanical Gardens 2015 Aster Awards, given to individuals who embody the mission to transform our city by connecting people to plants and the natural world. Arlene has more than 10 years of experience growing food, an additional eight in landscaping, horticulture, and silviculture. With Arlene is Nicole Austin, who is a food justice advocate who knows nutrition and food are central to individual and community well-being. She champions restorative justice, progressive urban planning, environmental stewardship, and community-based initiatives upon which marginalized people can build capacity and become food sovereign on their own terms. Nicole firmly believes positive, sustainable food system transformation comes through collaboration, knowledge sharing, and intentional reconciliation. She is the Black-led program coordinator at the Toronto uh, Metropolitan University's Urban Farm and participates in strategic planning with Black Black Food Sovereignty Toronto. Nicole holds degrees in geography and environmental science and a BASC in nutrition and food. Nicole Austin and Arlene Thronis, thank you very much for joining us today on our Sustainable Futures podcast. So farming is a tough profession at the best of times, you know, and rooftop farming, maybe even more so. So I'm wondering, maybe we could start off with you telling us a little bit how you got both got into rooftop farming in the first place and, you know, what keeps you going? Maybe perhaps, Nicole, you could lead off. So first of all, Stephen, thank you very much for the warm welcome. It's my pleasure to be here today and uh, share the work that I'm doing at the farm with your audience. Um, So actually, it was an interesting path for me um, to be working at the farm as I've never farmed before. I grew up in um, a suburb of Toronto, uh, Oshawa, Ontario, for those that may know or not. Um, And then I decided to go back to school in 2016 for my second degree and was studying food and nutrition. And at first I thought I'm there to become a registered dietitian. That's what this program is all about. 
but I quickly realized that my heart um, and my passion was more in the, the food security realm. And so I was working at a, a center called the Center for Studies in Food Security at TMU since 2017. And we shared an office with the urban farm team at that time. And Arlene and I really connected right off the bat along with the rest of the team. And her and I would have many conversations about the community work I was doing and also what they were doing up at the farm. So uh, it was at the center as well that I met someone named Anand Lololi, who is one of my mentors and is the founder and former executive director of something called African Food Basket that's up at Jane and Finch in Toronto. And it was at the center that we had the very first Black Food Sovereignty Initiative meeting. And so when I graduated in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to be able to work? This is strange. These are strange times. But because of the work I was doing, I ended up being employed the whole time through. And then it was in late 2020 that Arlene uh, reached out and asked if I would like to perhaps develop some programming at the farm to amplify and complement the work going on with Black Food Sovereignty Initiative Toronto. So I started in 2021, very green, um, you know, very eager to learn on a steep learning path. Um, but then that first year I was thinking, so what am I doing here? What is Black Food Sovereignty Toronto? How will I develop programming and engage community that has often been excluded from certain spaces? And so, um, after a year of learning, learning to farm, grow, I the next year, uh, uh, the first year of the pilot program, I developed something called the Harvest Collective and Learning Circle. And with that, I framed it out with four key pillars, which are food literacy, food and social justice, environmental stewardship, and community healing. So with that framework, I then was able to develop program that we piloted this uh, last season in 2022. And um, I would say it was a great success, mainly in part because I had my own farm plot for the first time. That's the learning circle. Um, and I shaped it in an, into a Mandela shape. And we, I know um, maybe we'll be talking about uh, farm design later. But um, yeah, that the idea with that is that people can come into the space, engage, touch the plants, taste the plants, and just immerse themselves in that experiential learning format. So that that's sort of me. And I now am very passionate about farming. I don't think I'll ever stop farming, even if it's just on my own little uh, garden, because um, it's something that I find very fulfilling, very healing and a great way to connect with people. That's fantastic. So uh, that's amazing, that, that story about how you guys were together in similar offices and uh, that sort of helped to precipitate uh, the development of all this amazing work that you're doing. Arlene, what's your uh, story? So I became interested in urban agriculture in my early 20s. I was taking a class in Latin American history at my local college where I grew up in Vancouver. And I learned some pretty horrific stuff about the industrial food system, how it exploits land and people, the legacies of colonialism, genocide and slavery. And at the same time, I was uh, working as a tree planter and mowing lawns. And I, I really loved working outside. But I started thinking about how these industries were essentially monoculture farms. And I wanted to direct my energy to something more sustainable. Um, but school can be a really terrifying place as a young person. I felt like we were being taught that the world was ending. And I wondered if I should take my student loan and head into the woods to brace for the apocalypse. 
apocalypse. <laughs> and <laughs> we laugh, find but, a cave. Find laugh a cave. but not funny. <laughs> find a cave somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. We laugh, but it, it was actually pretty depressing. And I, now yeah. that I work with, with students at TMU, I see this in them. They're, they are scared of the, of the future. So yeah, it can be really a lot to take in when you, when you um, are seeing all, hearing all the data. Um, but it was, uh, it was that same class, that Latin American history class that was also full of, because Latin American history is also full of hope and resilience and innovation. And uh, we learned about some pretty interesting and exciting alternatives, like the urban farming system in Cuba. So I went to Cuba in 2005 on a five-week bike trip to visit the Organoponicos, and I came back and started working and studying on farms. I moved to Montreal because of the Concordia rooftop greenhouse. Um, which was where I learned that I'd have to be a self-starter in this industry. Uh, after se seven years of internships following uh, working there um, and low-paying jobs, I was pretty close to giving up. But in 2013, I was hired at the Toronto Metropolitan University, and it was another contract that was less than a year part-time and involved fundraising to sustain the project. But when I saw the green roof, that was intended to be converted into a rooftop farm, I knew that we could build a successful project there. And 10 years later, we have a team of seven, two rooftops, and I feel really grateful not only to have a career in urban farming, but to be at a university where we can create more jobs, share knowledge, run programs like the amazing program Nicole just explained. Um, we also have Indigenous foodways, we do research. Um, so we can actually build capacity for the urban farming industry. And I'd say what keeps me going is how good the food tastes. Let's not underestimate that part when you're having a bad day. And also working with worms and mycelium is also pretty uplifting. And seeing the rooftop farm through the eyes of our program participants for the first time when they come to visit is also, it, it really never gets old. So it's, it's, I feel really privileged to be working in this field. And flowers, Arlene, and flowers. Oh, the flowers, you know, the <laughs> eggplant flowers, the okra flowers, takes your breath away. You can't walk by the farm and not see it from a different angle. It's, it's always changing. It's, there's always something that catches your eye and it. it's truly healing. It really is. Every time I've had an opportunity to visit it, it's all, I've always found it to be quite uplifting. But I mean, what's really interesting is that the, you know, we've been building green roofs all over the city of Toronto. We're upwards of around 10 million square feet installed right now. And one of the interesting things about the history of the, the rooftop farm is that it wasn't always a rooftop farm, right? It, originally, it was an extensive green roof and it hadn't been maintained for years. So it had lots of um, what would be considered weedy species on it. It was kind of like a wild meadow. How did you convert something like that into a farm farming operation? Perhaps you could explain that a little bit to us. So the opportunity to convert the, the green roof yeah. actually came through the incredible work of the founder of the project that Nicole and I are now a part of. Um, and the work that, her name is Catherine Lung, and the work that she was doing at the ground level so as a student at TMU, she wanted to grow food on campus and began working with the groundskeeper, uh, the grounds manager, Garth Poppleton, to identify uh, spaces that could be converted into food production. And at the time, this massive green roof was 10 years old 
It had more than 30 species of, of wild plants, um, which Vincent Javitt from your team, Stephen, actually identified for us. And uh, Garth suggested that Catherine convert it. So that's when I was hired to join Catherine's team to help support the conversion and transition of the project into a department. So what we did was it was pretty it was pretty uh, daunting to see. On the one hand, seeing all these weeds was ex exciting because we knew that the the soil was alive and it was fertile because the weeds were were really healthy and and really abundant which I think was was at the time was pretty exciting for the green roof community too to see this 10-year-old green roof that was really thriving. Um so we knew that there was potential but we also knew it was going to be a lot of work. So we started with just a 1000 square feet and we used a technique called sheet mulching. So we let all those weeds grow right up to our knees in the spring. And then we cut them down and covered them with a tarp for two weeks, let everything under the tarp decompose. Um, so that's called sheet mulching. And then we added, once we lifted the tarp, everything was kind of, you know, starting to look brown. There was some activity with bugs um, happening. And uh, then we we threw some compost on there and we dug the paths, bringing the, the soil depth from six inches up to a foot. And uh, we then planted like many, many different types of, of vegetables, and they grew exceptionally well, better than at the ground level, which we were not expecting. Um, and we attributed that to the soil being alive for 10 years with all these weeds growing and dying, building biomass, lots of insects and microbial activity in the soil. And also with the sheet mulching, we didn't disturb the layers of the soil, which allowed this beautiful living soil food web to remain intact for the rhizosphere to remain intact. And we then completed the full 10,000 square feet uh, over two growing seasons and planted a market garden. Phenomenal. Um, <clears throat> can you describe, give people a sense uh, who are listening, what the scale of your operations are, maybe some statistics about how, how big it is and what you're doing with your food and how much food and that type of stuff? Yes. So. Pause for dramatic effect. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up these stats so that I get it right. Um, so, yeah. So as you know, Stephen, there's a green roof bylaw in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So every new building over that's over a certain size has to have a green roof. So because of this, uh, the Toronto Metropolitan University campus has a number of green roofs. And, you know, occasionally the university builds new buildings and new green roofs are going in. So after we converted this roof and the, the urban farm became such a special place um, on campus, the university decided the next green roof was going to be a rooftop farm. And that uh, is the first purpose-built rooftop farm for the green roof bylaw in Toronto and at uh, TMU. So that was really exciting. And that farm is dedicated to Indigenous foodways and Black food sovereignty. So that means we have two rooftop farms. So the original roof that we converted is 10,000 square feet. So it's a, a quarter acre. Um, it's divided into a, a four crop uh, rotation for a market garden. And then there's also um, a, another plot that's dedicated just to pollinator plants and flowers. We have mushrooms. Uh, we had honeybees, but we decided to take a pause and try to build up our native bee population um, <clears throat> for ecological reasons. And uh, we also have an indigenous food waste plot, and then we incorporate culturally significant crops into the market garden as well. 
And one of the things that was missing in that, because we did have to, um, we did have to do some structural changes after we converted the green roof to a farm. We had to add fences and we had to add a wash station. One of the things that's missing is a gathering space. So the new farm, we we put in a spec that we wanted to have a nice big gathering space. So the new rooftop is about um, 4,000 square feet of growing space. Um, but then it also has a gathering space that can host up to 140 people. It also has a green roof that's about uh, 600 square feet. It has an indoor post-harvest processing room and um, a tool shed. So it's it's got it's got more um, <clears throat> purpose-built infrastructure for rooftop farming, which is great. And um, we produce uh, about 6,000 pounds of food a year, and we distribute it following a model of thirds, which is a, a model that was inspired by a farm called Urban Roots in London, Ontario. So essentially, we donate no less than a third of our harvest. We sell a third at student affordable rates, and then the other third we sell at market price. Um, so yeah, I think that's, and then we, we, yeah, as I mentioned, we have a living lab where we work with researchers across disciplines. We host lots of programs and, um, yeah, it's a pretty dynamic space. It sounds fantastic. Um, one of the challenges that people that are, um, trying to operate, um, or rooftop farms is the economic challenge. How do you sustain you know the the staff and the and the resources required to run a farm um, based on the sale of of the produce, which often seems to fall short. What's the model that you're operating under? You said you were going to sell stuff in uh, at market rates. How are you able to sustain yourself? Do you have support from the university? What what's the model that makes it all work uh, at, at uh, TMU? I'm not going to lie here. We spend more than we make buy a lot, but we, so, uh, <laughs> but that's if we're talking just purely financial. So if we're looking at the benefits of the project, of course, there's, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, there's so many ecological benefits to what we're doing, which is why this bylaw exists. Um, and then there's so many social benefits, which I think um, Nicole will get into, but um, we, we do make about the same amount per like for the size of our farm as a rural farm and as other rooftop farms. So we, the most we've made in a season is $50,000 in revenue with our um, produce sales and our programming sales. And that is pretty impressive for a quarter acre rooftop or a quarter acre farm. So that's, um, but we, of course, we, because we do a lot of research and programs, we have we have a big team, so it does cost more to run the rooftop farm, but we have funding from the university. We also have um, grants and, and private gifts that we, uh, we work to get each year. So that's how we, that's how we operate. And I think partnering for urban farming, you know, like wh whether you're rural farming or you're urban farming, or you're running a restaurant, like anything to do with food is, um, is, you know, it, breaking even is typically the goal for businesses that are working in food. So I think it's, I think partnering with an institution like a university or a community center or a hospital is a great way to, to, um, to have access to some, um, to some revenue and to some support in getting revenue. Right. Because you're doing a lot more than just growing food. You get to monetize all those other benefits through those partnerships. Yeah, Absolutely. It's great. And just as another note with that, um, 
I think it's important to note that also the the urban farm is is an important space and a beautiful space. And so I think it just it showcases a lot for the university to then go out and get those grants and have those nice shiny pictures. So that's sort of like the surface level of it, but it is important for um, keeping it financially sustainable, you know? Yeah, so the, the university uses the farm as sort of a showcase to talk about its innovative programming and, and so forth to promote itself. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, th those are the, um, you know, the, just the, the joy of spending time on the farm is one of the most recognizable benefits, but um, it's, it is hard to measure the, the, the importance of clean air and clean water, uh, especially as we have just continued to surround ourselves with toxic, um, the, like the built environment just being toxic and and uh, like really going against our own health and wellness. So having having these spaces that are um, that are actually improving our quality of life mentally and physically, uh, along with the the the, ecolo the other ecology that lives in the city, um, the other living things that need clean air and clean water, and a you know a place to perch if you're a bird or a butterfly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's who pays for that? It's a, it's a really tricky one because we all benefit from it and we need to, we need to have it. So it's complicated. How do, are your farms accessible to the public in certain hours? Like how do people get an experience of this, these wonderful places? We have a lot of, um, a lot of programs as it stands. Now you do have to sign up if you want to come to a field walk or come to a program, but we do like, we have a lot of free programs. We have a lot of low cost programs and then we have, some more like higher level technical trainings, but basically, yeah. If you if you check out our website, um, you can see how to to sign up for a tour or a field walk or a an activity. Mm -hmm. And what's your website address? Just be uh, so we don't forget it. It is um, torontomu.ca and um, slash urban dash farm. Do you want to say that one more one more time, please? Um, <clears throat> TorontoMU.ca slash urban farm. Mm -hmm. I said it better that time. Yeah. So it seems like there's a, <laughs> a bunch of ways that you engage uh, with uh, with people on the farm. Um, what would you say the the social justice related benefits uh, that are associated with your farm are? And how how what are you doing to support those benefits, Nicole? I think you started to talk about that earlier. Maybe you could expand a little bit about on that. Yeah, so as I did mention, uh, the work that I'm doing at the farm is really about building capacity and knowledge mobilization, particularly focused on Black food sovereignty, but also supporting Indigenous food sovereignty initiatives as well. And so that, you know, in and of itself might seem a bit abstract. So um, the Harvest Collective and Learning Circle, grounded by those four key pillars that I mentioned, um, the food literacy, food social justice, environmental stewardship community healing. Um, that is sort of how it got framed out to support um, and amplify uh, Black food sovereignty as a social justice movement, if you will, or a food movement. And so the program ran on the third Friday of the month from June to September. And each month I invited uh, a different community co-facilitator uh, to share knowledge and uh, learnings um, 
that are really um, black food sovereignty in action, if you will, and uh, that would highlight one or more of the four key pillars. Um, in our marketing and outreach, uh, we really wanted to target uh, black youth, students, faculty, staff, and of course, the community at large. Um, and this was very intentional because historically, black people in particular have often been excluded from certain spaces like this or not even aware that they exist. You know, uh, an example is, you know, organic farming spaces. I think it's changing now, but historically, um, you know, and this isn't to offend anyone, it's just, you know, facts. Um, organic farming has, uh, that niche has often been filled by uh, white people that can afford land or maybe, um, you know, inherited land from family, whatever it may be. So this was really intentional to um, make, uh, to, to create a welcoming space where everyone belongs. And um, it's important to note, though, it wasn't exclusive to the Black community by any means, but we definitely, the messaging was, this is for you, by us, for us. So I, um, one of the, the the key decisions I made when I first started, I knew I had to keep it also grounded by the three B principle. And for those in the audience that might not know, three Bs means black led, black mandated, and black serving. And I like to stress when I mention that that this is not about working in segregation because that would actually be the exact opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Um, so it's about um, uh, you know knowledge mobilization, claiming space, and just knowing that what the programming is starts with us so that we can see ourselves in it and be a part of it from the get-go. And so with that, um, you know, uh, we had the community co-facilities come in and the subjects that we explored uh, we had Anam Loli come in and talk about the history and sort of the journey of Black Food Sovereignty. Um, the Each session, everyone who participates gets to do a tour of both rooftop farms. And it was amazing to see every single time you bring almost anyone new up to the farm, they are amazed at what's going on downtown Toronto on a rooftop at a university. And so it was really special to see the participants that had maybe never even been to a farm, um, you know, come up to the roof and be amazed and inspired. Um, and I, I heard from more than one that they were are now inspired to perhaps grow food or even get into farming as, a, a, you know, perhaps a, a, a career or at least to build their own food sovereignty capacity. So yeah, we did explore um, the Black Food Sovereignty, like what it is with Nanda Loli. Then we also did, um, we had a youth uh, leader named Hansel Igbevova. He came in and he is um, into mixed media. So he explored uh, what's going on in the Black community with Black farmers and Black food sovereignty from a youth perspective through storytelling with mixed media. And that was a really wonderful session. Um, it was a very unique lens. The participants had a lot of fun. We also explored uh, plants as medicine or herbalism with um, a herbalist named Quabena, who has tons of knowledge, maybe so much um, that it, we might have to bring him back for a series of, of visits. And then we had um, Peachtree, a very long time uh, activist that explored seed saving because because seed saving is a very integral part to building any community's food capacity. And so these are just some of the ways that the program um, tried to um, create experiential learning opportunities that um, were embodying what food and social justice could be through farming or food work.
I do like to say at this point, though, um, when I talk about the program that I always have to remind people like no one initiative is going to solve the food insecurity issue that uh, so many people face. But I think what the farm can be, the urban farm can be, is a conduit of learning and that knowledge mobilization. So my hope, and I, I've seen it, I've seen it working, um, is that people who engage with the program will then go out and perhaps be inspired to develop and create initiatives in their own communities to build capacity and make the communities healthier and, and, and better through their lens. Um, so that's one of the key objectives I hope that people are inspired to do, um, to build capacity in their own communities as well. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty awesome. You know, we definitely need um, a greater amount of knowledge and expertise and capacity out there to take advantage of all the opportunities. Um, I'm just wondering, what does the term food sovereign mean? I, I hadn't come across that before your uh before your talk, what does it mean to be food sovereign? Yeah, I think the best way to explain it is to actually explain it in its evolution. Um, so I think that it represent, food sovereignty in itself represents this evolution for community to ensure their right to food because we all have a right to food without it we don't exist. So I think the beginning of that journey would be say the food charity model, which is sort of say a, a ground zero, if you will. Um, but it, you know, as we've seen historically, it doesn't really resolve, solve anything. It has its place. It's important and it serves many, but it's not solving anything, right? It's that band-aid um, over the issue of food insecurity. So then when we get into the idea of food advocacy, that's when communities are free to start shaping their own food systems um, as food, food, as we know, can be a vehicle to justice, health and sustainability for everyone. So then as we think about that evolution, thinking about what is food sovereignty, it's basically everyone's basic right to the food that's decent, healthy, culturally appropriate, and produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods. And it's also their right to define their own food and agricultural systems and obtain fair uh, access to resources in order to advance their own food security. So it's really about that self-determinization. Um, but however, I think in action at the community level, Black food sovereignty is many things and it's dynamic and evolving, but at its core, it's about repairing, I think, and rebuilding a food system in which Black people are empowered to self-advocate for our right to healthy, affordable food and reclaim and celebrate our rich food heritage and have equitable access to resources so that we can build capacity and become food secure and food sovereign on our own terms. Um, and, you know, I, I, in terms of this evolution, there have been many key milestones over the past three decades um, in the greater Toronto area. And I think some very important ones during what I call these times of reckoning, um, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, because I'm not sure if everyone is aware that when the pandemic hit, it was the marginalized communities that were affected impact immediately hard and immediately. Um, and so it was community that kicked into action to help fill some gaps there. So Black Food Sovereignty Toronto has been working across the African Caribbean and Black of African descent communities um, to basically conceptualize and organize what this Black Food Sovereignty Initiative will be so that we can establish 
um, it more formally. And so in the fall of 2021, there was a huge celebration, uh, big victory came when the city of Toronto's confronting anti-Black racism unit um, and the Black Food Sovereignty Toronto uh, unanimous, unanimously approved Canada's first Black Food Sovereignty Plan. And so it recognized the need for immediate and comprehensive action to address the problem of food insecurity experienced by too many Black Torontonians. And as we know, Toronto is the home of the largest Black community in Canada. But across Canada, it's estimated that uh, about 100,000 Black children go to bed hungry every day. This is this is too much. This is this is not right. So the good news with this plan is the city um, uh, granted a five million dollar budget that can be used strategically to implement the plan over five years. This is historical. This is amazing because you need that financial um, stability to keep something like this sustainable and so it's about building that community capacity providing a framework to combat the root causes of food insecurity and you know a major one being systemic economic disparities um and one of the community elders reminds us and i think this this is an important quote to also conceptualize what this thing is is that the plan differs from traditional food security efforts because it addresses racism as a major cause of food insecurity in black communities without this understanding traditional privilege certain uh sorry without this understanding traditional efforts privilege certain communities but undermine the health and well-being of others so it's not about pointing fingers anymore it's about us advocating for ourselves with the support of the greater community at large and so um you know i think that these are truly historic times and i hope that the program at the farm the harvest collective and learning circle can contribute to this movement in lasting and positive ways um, where can people go? Is, is this plan uh, on the City of Toronto website? Or is there a place that people can go to download it and read it? Absolutely. Um, if you were to type in the um, Black Food Sovereignty Plan for Toronto, you'll be taken right to the city page that explains the plan comprehensively. And um, yeah, it's a great plan. And it, it, I think it's doable um, if we just, you know, one step at a time and implement that strategic plan over the five years and a big huge piece of the plan is to make sure that community are reflected in it so um, we've been having we've had so far three community conversations so that everybody and anybody who's interested in establishing this and building it can is invited whether you're a restaurant owner a small business owner you're in healthcare, or even law we want all the um some great thinkers in the community to come together so it reflects all of us or as much as we can well that sounds fantastic and it sounds like a major victory as well so congratulations uh on that um <clears throat> we know that foods are sort of very central to a, a lot of these issues and uh, it can uh, pave the way for a much better and more equitable future for uh, for marginalized communities in our urban centers um, Tremendous, uh, tremendous work there. Um, I'm wondering if um, we'll take a short break now. Uh, we're just uh, talking uh, with Nicole Austin and Arlene Thronis, who are um, rocking the, the farms at Toronto Metropolitan University. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back.
In 2023, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities is taking our smaller scale, gray to green conference on the road, featuring a strong focus on local design and policy considerations and addressing regional priorities through practical solutions. Our first in-person conference will be held at the Fort Point Room at Boston's Atlantic Wharf on April 23rd and 24th. The conference is approved for seven continuing education credits. Registration starts at only $125 for GRHC members. Join local designers, policymakers, and innovators for expert presentations, tours, networking, and a trade show. This event will also feature the first green roof installation and maintenance professional training, a new hands-on training program for contractors and installers. Special thanks to our sponsors, NatureCycle, Recover Green Roofs, and Devon's Enterprise Commission for their support of this event. For more information, visit us at gray2greenconference.org, and we hope to see you there. Welcome back. Uh, with me today, we have Arlene Thronis and Nicole Austin, who are both actively involved in running two rooftop farms in Toronto at Toronto Metropolitan University. And we're learning a lot about how they've sort of expanded the, the role of rooftop farming beyond the traditional growing food into a whole range of different uh, social justice and equity related areas and try to trying to address some of those issues that exist in the city of Toronto. You mentioned Indigenous community programming earlier. How does the rooftop farm at Toronto Metropolitan University support Native or Indigenous communities? Arlene, maybe you could lead off with that. <clears throat> yeah, so um, like the Black Food Sovereignty Initiative, we also have an Indigenous foodways program at the urban farm at TMU. So um, we have uh, our Indigenous-led programs coordinator, Samantha Williams. Um, we met her well, when she was a student at TMU and she started volunteering at the farm um, to harvest our ceremonial tobacco. We invited her, we invited Aboriginal Student Services to come and harvest ceremonial tobacco. And they were um, really excited because um, it's not something that should be bought uh, or grown commercially. So it was it was a nice um, way to connect the two departments. And Samantha is um, a plant enthusiast and a, um, yeah, really, really passionate, knowledgeable person. So she just immediately was excited to to see that grow. So she started um, a, a, a plot that was dedicated just to indigenous foodways with the three sisters, which is corn, beans, and squash, um, which is a traditional way of growing food um, that is actually um, very ecological because it involves um, plant relationships and how plants work together. Um, in in uh, To grow together, like the corn grows up, the beans grow around, and the squash um, fills the space in between. And it's a very effective and productive way to grow food. And then she also has a um, medicine garden that is a medicine wheel with the four sacred medicines. So we continued the tobacco and, and she also added sweet grass, sage and cedar. And then she has many other um, medicinal plants and um, sacred plants and culturally significant plants, native plants that support local pollinators like milkweed, like the monarch butterfly. Um, so when we, when we, um, were given occupancy on the new roof, that was an opportunity to expand the indigenous foodways. 
So as we mentioned, that's, that new rooftop farm is dedicated entirely to indigenous foodways and black food sovereignty. And um, like Nicole mentioned, um, you know, we on these two rooftop farms, like we, we may not be able to solve food insecurity, but we can give people a space to connect with their cultural um, and traditional ways of growing food and their cultural foods and medicines um, and just give, give communities a place to connect with nature and each other. So we have um, uh, like a really strong population of Indigenous students, staff, faculty, and community members at TMU. And um, they've all come to the farm and really enjoyed seeing um, seeing all these plants. And people have said, you know, this is the first time I've seen sweetgrass growing in downtown Toronto. So I think that's a really it's a really shocking thing to hear, you know, and it's, uh, it's also really important that, um, that there's more spaces dedicated to this. So. so and if proud. I could, sorry, Stephen, I was just going to say, if I could add, I'm really excited that Sam has also planted things like raspberries, elderberry, blackberries, strawberries, um, because she has a long-term goal of establishing these plants on the farm. And um, I think that that's sort of a fresh and new idea to be growing um, uh, plants like that um, on a rooftop. Yeah, and we have a we have a team of seven staff on the farm um, for production research and engagement. And, but we also have summer positions um, for students um, and we had three Indigenous um, staff supporting the farm this year, in addition to Samantha. So I think it really, it really is important to have um, to have uh, diverse cultures represented at the at the urban farm to attract um, to attract people to want to to want to work there and want to be in that space and support the project. Um, you both mentioned food security several times and how, you know, the farm can't, you know, you know, address the full scope of the food security issue. Maybe for the readers, you could, uh, listeners, you could um, explain what you mean by food security in simple terms and what your thoughts are about the, the roles of the farm or rooftop farming or urban farming in general uh, as activities that can help to address this important issue of food security. Well, so yeah, my first talk. thought was just that we do have a, a food center on campus. So we have the, the, the Good Food Center, which is a student run initiative um, for emergency food relief on campus. And I think Nicole, you mentioned the other day they're doing 400 boxes right now. I think when I ran into the food that the, the delivery, it was, I think 300 plus. Yeah. And I think over the pandemic, I think 600 students signed up for emergency food relief with the university. Um, and, and that's just at, that's just on campus. Like we're in a neighborhood where there's a lot of food insecurity and it's, it's not just because there's not enough food. There's also not enough infrastructure to support food distribution in these communities. There's not enough fridges. And so, and that's where the community fridges came in. And so it's a really complicated issue. And, um, at the urban farm, we do produce a very surprising amount of food. So impressive, but it's not anywhere near 300 um, boxes. Um, so yeah, we we may not be able to in in you know in the we now have like close to a half acre of growing space. Um, we may not be able to to solve uh, you know the the 
the um, the food demand of our community. But um, but we can create, as Nicole has been saying, we can create programs and experiences that link people to their to to you know to how to grow food on your own or to cultural foods, to healthy food, um, to to uh, a better relationship with food. So I think, um, and and that's you know we Stephen, you mentioned we have a million square feet of ten million square feet, ten million square feet of green. Um, green roof infrastructure in the city. And I've heard the stat that we have over a thousand green roofs now. Somewhere around, yeah, somewhere, nobody knows for sure, but it's around there. Yeah, like there's so many we can't count. So, and we just have two, <laughs> two, two medium to large size rooftop farms at TMU. So, you know, maybe that, maybe that impact will, will change when we have more, more green roof space dedicated to rooftop farming because it's pretty awesome to not have competition with raccoons and rabbits and deer and um geese and, and geese yeah and, well, we do have geese we do have geese that's true and uh and humans right like we don't have we don't have people like taking a nap in our tomato patch or anything like that so i mean maybe that's not true maybe the odd time we do maybe it's me but um but yeah, there, there is a lot of benefits to growing on a rooftop. So let's not shut down the potential for rooftops to produce a lot of food. So we might see that happen. Well, let's scale it up. Maybe let's scale it up, scale up rather than slow down. Um, sounds like it would be really cool if you could address the food security issues of the students that go to the school with rooftop farm production and other forms of production on the campus. Wouldn't that be an amazing um goal potentially to work towards. Yeah. And, you know, we do, we do donate uh, quite a bit to the good food center and we get a lot of feedback that sometimes we are the only fresh food uh, that's available on a given day. So I think even though maybe we're not supplying, you know, all the food that students need, we are providing like healthy food that, that is um, fresh food, you know, so, and, and, and crops that, you know, people might not see at a grocery store that are meaningful to them. So I think, I think like just looking at the, at the, the, the yield is, is, would be limiting the the vast scope of the many benefits that having a rooftop farm provide. For sure. For sure. Now you mentioned earlier that your farm is also very educational. Maybe um, you could describe for us what type of research are you undertaking uh, or various people within the university are undertaking? So, yeah, so in that same kind of line of we have a green roof bylaw, we have over a thousand green roofs, but we aren't, we're, we're hearing more and more about uh, rooftop farms that are in development right now, but we haven't seen a lot um, reach completion. Maybe we will soon, but I think being that we're one of the first um, examples of how to use this technology for food production in the city, uh, we and we're at a university. We really want to leverage that to build capacity. So we um, we collect information every year from the community on what um, research people want to see at the farm, and then we we have an, a conference which actually is coming up on February fifteenth, uh, where we we have a roundtable with researchers at TMU and beyond. Um, can connect with industry professionals, urban farmers, architects, engineers, developers. Um, and landscape architects to to chat about you know what what kind of research we need to see. So what that has led to is um, 
a lot of research in quantifying ecosystem services. And I do have a fun, exciting stat that I can share with you on some recent research in uh, ecosystem services. So we had a researcher named Tamar who um, will we'll provide more information so you can look up his um, his study alongside this podcast. But uh, he was studying our water and he found that we were actually retaining 80% of the water that comes through the soil of our rooftop farm. And we were holding it for a peak delay of eight hours. Is everyone as excited about this as I am? That's amazing. That's amazing factoid, Arlene. I love that. Very efficient. Yeah. So whew, we are a sponge. We are a sponge up there. So 80% contrib- for eight hours. You're contributing to a reduction in the uh, problems we have with peak big storms and flooding and combined sewer overflow going into our streams and rivers and lake, Lake Ontario. You're, you're contributing to solving that problem. Yep. And then we also have some really interesting research. Like we had um, two professors from the fashion school uh, come up and do a research project through the Natural Dye Network. And they st- they took um, marigold flowers and goldenrod and they made dye uh, with it. And they dyed some fabrics with their students on the rooftop farm. So there's there's really dynamic research things happening at the farm in, in many different Scales, and that's another interesting thing about rooftop farming is that how it, how it overlaps with so many different fields of study. So there's always there's always some really interesting things happening up there. That's fantastic. It uh, and I think we probably need that type of research, you know, to better understand what the opportunities are, and also I would think for to translate some of that into to training or learning. Do you have? Um, has have you been able to translate some of the knowledge you've gained by running these farms into programming for wannabe rooftop farmers? Yeah, so Nicole's program is certainly one program where we are um, sharing knowledge around um, how to grow food. And we also have um, workshops, um, regular workshops, like each week on different topics, and they're very low price point. It's um, just five bucks for students and 10 for community. So it's anything from how to grow microgreens to how to make compost tea, um, to how to harvest wild plants and make, um, make, a um, a tinct, uh, vinegar solution, um, medicinal stuff like that. And, um, and then we also do a more intensive training series that, um, is designed for people who are already working in the industry or who are planning to work in the industry who want to kind of get the full scope of how to design and manage a rooftop farm. Is that is that something that uh, like is that like a six month intensive course or is it online or how do you deliver that? Yeah, it's in the past. It's always been in person. It's it uh, it was. We started it out as, as a 10-week course, and then we shortened it to six weeks. I'm not sure what we're going to do this coming year, but um, we, we may make it a little longer, like make it a spring a spring component and a summer component. But the idea is that it is integrated with hands-on demonstrations and activities. So we do, we do sit down and have a classroom component, but then we also have a lot of stuff happening in the field so people can see in real time, like 
you know, what, what different aspects look like and, and get their hands on trying different things out. Wow. That sounds fantastic. And is that that's available through the RIRE, through the Toronto Metropolitan University website? Like where, where do people, when can people find out about that who might be interested? Yeah, because, because our programming is typically on site. Um, we're really focusing on finding as many ways as possible that we can welcome people into these spaces. So, so at the moment, like during the pandemic, we, we were doing some online stuff, but now we're really trying to focus, okay, students are back. Uh, let's get people up to the farm enjoying the space. So closer to like April is when we're getting, when we'll, people will start to see more on our website about the upcoming season and what's available. Okay. And then by June, we'll be in sort of full swing with, with having lots and lots of programs for people to come enjoy. Okay, that would be, that'd be great because this podcast will come out right around just before then. So they can find out more. Wonderful. Um, uh, what special designs or features, speaking to the design professions first profession for a second, if, you know, if you're wanting to do a, a rooftop farm that has, um, you know, the ability to produce um, market grade food and, you know, do all the things associated with that, what do you, what do you need to have? What would you say your sort of must haves if you were designing a, a building from the get go, from the start, what would you say? You have to really have what were you the things you would the list of things you say you really should build into the design I, I was gonna just throw out elevator really helpful right to the top boom yeah that would certainly help move move things uh up and down I was also going to mention that uh, because of the green roof bylaw, that actually does give an, an, an immediate guideline of what some of the basics of the infrastructure need to be. So that waterproof membrane, uh, the building has to have uh, be able to bear that weight load of having that growing media and, and other infrastructure. You definitely want to have an irrigation system, some way to, to irrigate um, the, the, the plants and also some some uh, way to, to process and store them so like sinks uh wash stations uh refrigeration uh that kind of thing and then obviously the basics of farming uh hand tools um uh that type of thing yeah we um trellising is also an interesting one because you know growing tomatoes and beans and you know a lot of the cucurbits like it, there is there is that desire to want to go up a bit, right? And um, it can be difficult to trellis in just a foot of soil. So I think, you know, I haven't seen any designs where the trellises, where there's maybe tie-offs kind of built in, um, where you can either tie down a trellis or or even maybe just drop a, drop a pole into a hole at the end of the beds. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, so maybe designing in some... Yeah, some way to, to to better support the trellising than what we have, which is just sort of sticking bamboo into the soil, and then it eventually kind of falls over when the plants get heavy. Um, but, but maybe tie-offs for other stuff too, because wind uplift is a real concern. And when you're rooftop farming, you're going to have stuff, um, you know, out out in the fields, row cover, and um, maybe, maybe tarps, um, different things. So yeah, making sure you have a place where you can either either an indoor place where you can put all your tools. Um, at the end of the day or when it's windy or, or maybe outdoor storage that you can safely put things in and, and even, yeah, tie down, tie down your row cover or your tarps. 
I was also going to mention some things that people might not think of um, initially um, beyond the technical and equipment um, is things like, you know, it's beyond a design feature, but maybe asking why you're going to grow the food. And so who is the intended audience? You know, what's your plan for distribution? Because answering those questions at the beginning of the process, the design process would help um, answer some of the questions that you would then build into your design. So, for example, on uh, the at the second rooftop site on the DCC building, um, it was a priority to make sure that we're growing food, um, culturally significant foods and medicine. Um, but we also wanted it to be a gathering space. So as part of that design, um, there was also that uh, wanting to make sure that there was social space. Um, whereas the first farm site is very much a production farm. Um, so it's traditionally designed to make sure that it's an intensive ecological output. Um, but I think that some of those initial questions, um, you know, why you're growing, what are you going to grow, who are you going to give the food to, how are you going to get it to them, I think actually feeds into some of the key decisions you make in your design. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point, Nicole. Um, I think that's uh, tremendous, tremendously important because especially since there's so many different goals that one can achieve with a, with a rooftop uh, farm. You know, in addition to producing, uh, you know, high quality food. Um, and don't forget a greenhouse. A greenhouse you know, is good for why would we want a greenhouse up there? So I wouldn't want the whole roof to be a greenhouse because I would want to have open air. I, I think it's important to note that open air green roof um, technology, soil based growing is where we're going to see um, the maximum ecosystem services with uh, stormwater um, mitigation and heat island, uh, having a reduction in the heat island and, and having all that wonderful biodiversity, having, you know, like um, the the bees and the, the butterflies and the birds landing on the farm. So if, if it's all greenhouse, then we're not getting that. But, um, but having a little greenhouse is nice so that you can grow your seedlings. So we have a short growing season in Toronto. You know, we, we go from um, snow outside to suddenly the longest days of the year and extreme heat. So we need the plants to be pretty far along when we plant them out. You know, there's a lot of stuff we can direct seed. There's a lot of cold hardy stuff that we can direct seed and transplant early in the season. But um, but having a greenhouse really helps to to up that production scale and maybe maybe grow some microgreens on the shoulder seasons as well. Yes, extend the productive capacity of the farm a little bit beyond the uh, the regular growing season. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I have, um, yep, go ahead. Another consideration is somewhere to capture rainwater because it is, it is um, yeah, it's really cool to see the, the roof soaking it up, but it's, it's nice to, we, we, sometimes we have long stretches in Toronto where it doesn't rain and, and it is, you know, it, as Nicole mentioned, it's so important to have irrigation, but it is always kind of a bummer to have to turn it on. It's nice to be able to, to really utilize that rainwater. So if we had a, a system to store it, and again, that would have to probably be designed in to the original infrastructure. It's really hard to add things on after and maybe even catching the 80% of water that we retain after it, you know, trickles away. Wouldn't it be cool if we could cycle it back in somehow? So any anyone with a design hat on listening? Get designing. The new Javits farm in New York has that capacity built into it. 
the runoff from the farm is captured into a cistern and then they use the, the cistern, the nutrients, because there's, there's nutrient runoff in addition to the potable water and they, it's a nutrient rich irrigation system. It automatically becomes that when they use the cistern water uh, to further irrigate the, uh, the roof at, uh, at the Javits Center, the new Javits Center extension in New York City. So that's, uh, they have that delightful, uh, that delightful capacity. Um, so I'm wondering um, uh, if we can sort of close off with um, any sort of final thoughts either of you might have about any kind of advice to give to people that are perhaps interested in getting into urban farming or rooftop farming, or maybe it's just hobby farming on their own balcony. What type of words of wisdom would you, would you like to share uh, with those individuals? Well, for myself, I, I started by just putting a few buckets on my balcony and I made a lot of mistakes. Like I tried to transplant carrots, which if you can imagine, they were pretty, when I took them out of the seedling pod, they were pretty crinkled. You know, you, you want a nice, long, straight carrot. You don't want a, a coiled up carrot, but yeah, I think, I think just, just trying some stuff out, like, um, the, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun to give things a shot and, uh, and then scale up from there, you know, start small and, and just enjoy it and, and reach out to your local urban farm um, networks and see who you meet and, um, you know, where you can get involved. Yeah, and I would also add that, um, you know, I, I touched on it before, but, you know, who, why are you going to grow? You know, what are you going to do with that food? Um, you know, what does it mean to you? And, you know, how, you know, and, and maybe how you connect uh, with others. But uh, one thing I learned, it was something Arlene said to me, because when I was learning how to farm, I would say, you guys know so much. I'll never know all this. Like, how will I ever learn? And what she said to me, and I've now that I've met other farmers and, and I hear it over and over again, expect to always be learning. And that's actually one of the exciting things about growing food in whatever uh, environment you're growing it in, uh, small or big scale. Um, and I think that that's actually a really positive thing about it. And I think that once you get that bug, and see the beauty um, and, and, and connect with the healing that growing food can give people. Um, I think that it's really exciting to have conversations and learn from other farmers. And I, so I guess basically I'm saying it's also a good idea to, to try to um, connect with a network of other people growing food, other farmers, um, whether it be in your community garden plot or at other farms, because I think that that knowledge sharing um, around food and, and tips for food and maybe seed sharing and whatnot is a really uh, big component. Like I, because I am a novice farmer, I always go back to those, those social benefits. So I think that um, it's really important um, if you wanna grow food, if you can, um, to connect it it's a community connection as well, you know, those social benefits and uh, the knowledge sharing. Yes, uh, obviously there's um, a lot of benefit that uh, comes from um, going down that pathway. And uh, I love the idea of constant learning uh, that you just talked about, Nicole, because I, I feel that very, way very much about green roofs in general. And I've been at it for more than 21 years now, and I'm still constantly learning about 
different applications of green roof technology and and this is one of the more exciting ones, obviously, to grow food uh, for people in communities and bring communities together. I'd like to thank both of you very much for your time, for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us today. Uh, I also would like to thank you for the innovative work that you're doing and the, the trailblazing that you're doing to push the boundaries of what an urban rooftop farm can be. And uh, hope you have a wonderful growing season uh, in 2023. Thank you, Stephen. It's been wonderful. And make sure you check out TMU's Urban Farm website so you can see all about our programming and ways to get involved. We'd like to welcome you and see you there. Thanks for hosting. Will do. Have a great, uh, have a great afternoon, ladies, and thank you once again. <laughs>